0: Imagine it's Mother's Day. If you're anything like me, you've left buying a gift till the last minute. It's a Sunday, a lot of the shops are closed, but you know there's a florist nearby. But the place that sells the chocolates she likes is in the opposite direction. You also need to pick up groceries before the supermarket closes, and that's in another part of town. And you're out of cash, so you need to go to an ATM. That's five stops. The shops are about to close. No worries, you can probably work out the quickest route, get it all done in time. But then you think, oh, I got to make some other stops too. Wine, grandma, petrol, other grandma, haircut, I got to buy some olive dip. If you need to make 10 stops, that's nearly 400,000 potential routes. You're going to need a computer. Well, it turns out computers find this confusing too. Once you reach 21 stops, even the world's most powerful supercomputer will take more than 300 years to compute the shortest path. At just 25 stops, that supercomputer will take the age of the universe. But a quantum computer will solve that problem in about 14 minutes, and you'll be back in your mum's good books before you know it, with time to spare to map your genome and predict next week's weather in real time. Welcome to Think Digital Futures, where I tell stories from and about the digital age. I'm your host Lawrence Bull. In this episode we go inside the lab that may build that first quantum supercomputer. And yes, it would be the first despite what you may have heard. And we answer the question, what is a quantum computer?
1: The bottom line is that a quantum computer does not solve every type of problem that you can throw at it. It solves a very specific class of problems. So people often say to me, you know, how how much is this going to improve my Call of Duty game? Or how much is this going to improve my resolution of the videos I watch? Dr Peter Rode lectures on quantum computation at the University of Technology, Sydney. And the answer is it doesn't do any of those things because that simply isn't what quantum computers are designed to do. They solve very specific problems. If you put your genetic information into a quantum
0: computer, it could be used to analyse that against all the potential medicines out there and tell you which ones would be most effective for you and which would kill you. Even better, it could be programmed to design new medicines tailored just for you. Would you like to know whether it's going to rain in a week's time? Weather forecasts rely on the interactions of huge amounts of complex data, which quantum computers could calculate. Would you like a faster internet? Quantum computers can look at all of the potential pathways between you and the information you need and select the fastest ones. Are you sick of getting stuck in traffic? Quantum computers will be able to plan traffic so that a whole city's driverless cars coordinate like a flock of birds. New algorithms for quantum computers are being discovered all the time. So what is a quantum computer and how is it different from a normal computer? Don't worry, you won't need a physics degree to understand. In fact, you just need to understand one thing, and that is this sound. Got it? All right, off we go. That noise you heard is the fundamental building block of a computer. Computers are just a series of electrical signals known as ones and zeros. This is a one. That's a single zap of electricity. And a zero is the absence of an electrical signal. Crickets, or nothing. Silence put them together, and they become a language for more complex things. The letter A, for example, is this. Each zap or cricket, one or zero, is called a bit. Today's typical computers have trillions of bits, and those bits all come together to do the amazing stuff that computers do. So that's what a computer is. A quantum computer, in some ways, is even more simple. In a normal computer, a one is a stream of millions of electrons very tiny particles smaller than atoms and a zero is no electrons but in quantum computers a bit is just one electron if it say spins clockwise it's a one if it spins anti-clockwise it's a zero but then there's also these other ways it can behave what 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 these other things are called superpositions here's another way to
2: think about it it's not as simple as just saying that we have a one a zero and one other option the way that we typically visualize it is using a thing called the block sphere so if you imagine a globe Um, A normal bit has two states, which we call 1 and 0, and so we'll call those the North Pole and the South Pole. So the North Pole's 1, the South Pole's 0, and in a normal bit you're only allowed to be in those two places on Earth. A qubit can also be in mixes of those two places, so you can now kind of imagine I've walked from the North Pole down to the equator. And so that, that's a perfect two-position, we call or an e- equal mix. In the qubit terms, that's exactly a 50% mix of up and down or 1 and 0. But now, also, I have the degree of freedom that I can walk around the equator. So that's called the phase. So already I'm kind of, uh, I have two dimensions of freedom now, because not only can I walk to different latitudes, I can also walk to different longitudes, and both of those coordinates matter. So it's not as simple as saying there is one third state. A qubit can actually be in an infinite number of distinct states. It can be in any position on a globe, which is a two-dimensional system, which is broadly more powerful than a simple two-state system, like just the North Pole or South Pole.
0: That is Matt McEwen. He's an honours student
2: working in the Quantum Computation Centre at the University of New South Wales. Um, in physics we use the angles, the zenith angle and the phase angle, but effectively you can think of it like the latitude and the longitude. Is what you're describing actually a literal point in space, or is this some kind of theoretical mathematical explanation that just helps us think about it. Yeah, okay. So it, no, it's an entirely mathematical construct. So quantum states are really interesting because they can only exist provided you're not interacting with them. So doing things like looking where something is or measuring its momentum, measuring how fast it's going, all of those constitute interactions that destroy quantum information. So what he's saying is that those superpositions what what what, what 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 what
0: meow all exist until you try to observe them. If you try to observe them by measuring where they are or what they're up to, then they snap back into being just normal ones or zeros
2: The state is a mathematical representation of what we think it's doing or like what it should be doing while we're not touching it. The second we touch it, it does the teleport to North Pole or South Pole thing, um, which makes it observably one or the other, but also makes the state very boring because we've gone back to just effectively a classical system where there's only two options.
0: You're listening to Think Digital Futures, where we tell stories from and about the digital age. Subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or any other podcast app.
3: So the vacuum here is better than um, outside the International Space Station. I'm standing with Dr. Joris Kaiser in front of a large machine. So we're looking at a very impressive piece of metal with all kinds of cables and uh, it's very shiny. But basically what this is is a scanning tilling microscope. It looks like a very modern
0: version of one of those old-fashioned deep-sea diving outfits, but kind of in the shape of an octopus. So it has a few bulbs that look like those diving helmets with windows bolted on the front. There's a microscope shaft sticking out one side, and a student research assistant keeps looking through it and then moving back to the computer screens nearby. The big metal outfit is almost totally empty. It's a vacuum. Inside is a single electron attached to a phosphorus atom that they're preparing to make into a bit. Actually, in quantum computing, they call it a qubit. The atom is placed on a tiny silicon chip coated in hydrogen. They're busy scratching away some of the hydrogen atoms and replacing them with a network of phosphorus atoms to
3: make a microchip. Or maybe they should call it a nanochip or something. I don't know. They just call it a chip. That is actually not a microscope that uses light because the wavelength of light is just way too big to image one atom. So that's why you need to use a tip that actually touches the surface of like, scans an atom. And it turns out that you can do that with such a precision that you can actually image individual atoms on the surface. So that's, that's very, very small. And to give you an example of how small that is, it's like 100 of the width of a human hair. So it's incredibly small and tiny. Have you ever
0: used one of those toys, it's like uh, a thousand pins and you can kind of put it on your face and then it makes an impression of your face, have you? Is it it
3: kind of like that? Yes, it's a very good analogy Uh, indeed. Uh, at, At discrete points on your sample you just take a measure of the height and you build up uh, an image. It's exactly like that. How do you explain your job to people's grandmothers? If I talk to grandmothers, I can at least talk about the old record players of 50 years past. They also have a needle. The needle runs in a groove, and the groove contains your your, sound waves. It goes up and down and tr- translate that into sound or music. What we do is obviously uh, orders of magnitude more precise, but the idea is basically the same. And we have to be careful when we look into the microscope because the tiniest of vibrations and... It's amazing that you actually can look at atoms, that you can see individual atoms. In high school, you, can, you, you learn that, like, oh, atoms are these round balls, and that's it. And you, we can't image them and, uh, with a microscope because they're too small, but... Later on, you learn that you actually can image them, and you can do cool stuff with it as well. You can pick them up, put them somewhere else, and you can actually make functional structures with them. Mm -hmm. Can you show me an atom? Uh, Yeah, I think so. We have to go back into the other room. uh,
0: We're looking at a computer screen. They've zoomed in on the rectangular chip, and it's represented like a heat map.
3: So they actually in, in the process of making a de- device here. So what you see here, you see these lines uh, running across the surface. Uh, these are actually um, um, the, the rows of, of atoms that you see. So silicon is a crystal, so all these atoms nicely order, uh, order themselves in a pattern. And if you see these bright spots there, for example the bright spot on the bottom left there, that's actually where one hydrogen atom is missing. So what we do here is the surface is terminated with hydrogen and locally we remove the hydrogen and we put other atoms in there, other kind of uh, atom like phosphorus. And phosphorus is metallic and silicon is a semiconductor. So in that way you can actually make our devices, our chips. And is this kind of you know like making a circuit board or something. Yes, it is it is exactly like that. So we have to make the wires, the connections, the gates, but it takes a bit longer. Intel does one chip is billions of yeah. transistors yeah. nowadays and thing. for them to produce one chip is like uh, probably like a millisecond or something, whereas it takes us like a, a week. Having said that, we can go much smaller than they can. So the yeah. smallest structures Intel can do at the okay. moment is 14 14 nanometers. And we can actually write at the atomic scale, so that's order of magnitude smaller. So, how much does a place like this cost? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. (laughs) A lot, a lot. So the um, the uh, scanning tunneling microscope you just saw is about uh, as close to a million. Found out later, they spent about a hundred
0: million dollars over the last 15 years. The money at the moment is coming from the federal government and the University of New South Wales, but also Telstra and the Commonwealth Bank. Quantum computing is going to be quite useful in banking and telecommunication for encryption and complex networks and things like that.
3: Once that we're done with the scanning tunneling microscope, it takes another two to three days of processing in this clean room to make all the contacts to the device. After the chip's
0: ready, it gets put into no-joke the coldest place in the universe.
4: So, all of our experiments are done at extremely low temperatures. My name is Matthew House, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher here at UNSW. We're looking for really small, sensitive effects that, you know, at room temperature, uh, we have a lot of physical vibrations of atoms moving around and electronic vibrations. Those would swamp the tiny little measurements that we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to manipulate single electrons. So if a lot of electrons are jumping around all the time, we're never going to see that. So all of our experiments have to be done at extremely low temperatures within a fraction of a degree of absolute zero. So the refrigerator, it really is just a refrigerator, but an extremely specialized one that can reach such a low temperature. When we go into the lab, what you're going to hear are the pulse tubes cooling the system down from room temperature, which is about 300 degrees above absolute zero down to about 3 Kelvin, or, or 3 degrees above absolute zero. And 20 milli Kelvin, 20 thousandths of a degree above absolute zero is the temperature in there right now. So it's a big purple tube,
0: like one of those Mario Brothers pipes, and it's sticking out of the ground, but instead of a hole on top, you're looking at a big silver a manhole cover with all sorts of pipes and what look like bad 80s versions of future robotic arms sticking out and then some pretty sophisticated looking stuff as well that's being fed into a what look like hospital measurement equipment looks like heart rate monitors or something but heaps of them piled on top of one another
4: where are the qubits are there qubits in here Uh, do you have a qubit in there matthias there is a qubit Okay. Can it be pointed to, or is that not a thing that... Well, it's, it's inside. If it was exposed so that you could see it, just light from the room would heat it up. It has to be inside there and extremely well protected from the environment around us. So it's in this big purple tank somewhere, is that right? That's right, it's, it's inside there. It's actually below the floor. If you were to open this up, you would find layer after layer of shielding to protect it from all the radiation and heat that's on the outside. Uh, which we call normal. As far as we know, dilution refrigerators are the coldest things in the universe. So outer space, if you go far, far out into space, far from any stars or anything, you will still find that there's some residual heat left over from the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And so the universe itself is about three degrees above absolute zero. But in here, we've artificially lowered the temperature even more to just a fraction of a degree. I actually thought it would be cold in here, but it's kind of warm. What we would call cold is maybe 10 degrees colder than it is right now. We would say, oh, it's cold in here, right? But this is now 300 degrees colder than we are. So that difference of 10 degrees wouldn't make any difference. That was for containing a qubit and studying it, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're we're not at the stage of What we would call making a quantum computer yet. We're still looking at single qubits and maybe two qubits at a time. We're looking to, uh, within the next five years, make a device that has 10 qubits, for example.
0: You're listening to Think Digital Futures, where we tell stories from and about the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or any other podcast app. UNSW is one of several labs around the world trying to figure out how to build a quantum computer. At the moment, it's kind of a beta versus VHS situation. Perhaps you don't understand that reference. Blu-ray versus HD DVD? 8-track versus cassette?
1: There are many different quantum systems. Uh, photons, particles of light, they are a quantum particle and they can be in a superposition of, of different states at the same time. An atom is a quantum particle. An electron or a superconductor, a very small superconducting circuit, is a, is a quantum device. They can all be used as the basis for building a quantum computer. Uh, so the question is, which one do we choose? Uh, they all have different technological requirements. They all have different advantages and disadvantages. I specifically work on what's called optical quantum computing, where we use single photons to represent uh, bits of information. So you might have heard of the polarisation of photons. It's sort of the, the axis upon which a photon travels when it moves in its direction of propagation. And we encode a bit of information into the polarisation of a photon. But there are many other ways. You could use an atom where the a level of the electron... in which orbital it's in, represents the quantum bit of information. All of these technologies are fundamentally different. They require different experimental setups, and so there's this huge raging debate about which one is going to win, which one is the best choice, and at the moment that's an open question. We simply don't know. They're all fairly much in their infancy and all require a lot of development before we have anything really useful coming out of it.
0: I read that there was a quantum computing that cost you know, multi-millions and right. millions of dollars.
1: Okay, so, so this is a very contentious uh, uh, issue that you raised. There's a company in Canada called D-Wave Systems, and they call themselves the Quantum Computing Company and uh and they make a commercial quantum computer which contains uh i think the the latest model contains 512 qubits or quantum bits and uh they claim that this is a quantum computer and you can buy them off the shelf for about 10 or so million dollars and a few big companies have bought them google has bought one uh, lockheed martin which i used to work for briefly uh has purchased one So you can buy these things. The question is, is it really a quantum computer? And that might sound like a really dumbass question. You know, you build this device, it either is or it isn't a quantum computer. What's so contentious about it? What's contentious about it is that uh, confirming that the output to a quantum computer really is the optimal output. Because remember, lots of the problems that these quantum computers are solving are optimization problems, where you want to find the best solution to a set of constraints. It's not always possible to immediately determine whether the answer is correct. Is the answer that the quantum computer gave us really the optimal solution to the problem? So it's actually not so straightforward to verify whether this quantum computer actually is a quantum computer in the sense that it's given us the best possible outcome to the question that we've asked it. So there's a lot of debate in the academic community about whether this D-Wave quantum computer really is a quantum computer or whether it's just a very, very fancy, flashy, classical computer. And so this is where the contention is. If it really is just a fancy classical computer, then probably we're wasting our money on it. If it really is a quantum computer, well then we'd like to get to the bottom of that and prove that it really is. And that is uh, not as straightforward as it might sound. What is the big
0: hurdle in
1: quantum computing? The big hurdle is, I think, technological. Uh, The problem is that we do have a very good theoretical understanding. So people like myself who work on the theory, we have a pretty good idea of what you need to build a quantum computer and what you can use it for, what its applications are. The problem is that it is... I'm sure, as you can imagine, very challenging to uh, take individual quantum particles, like photons and atoms, and manipulate them in a very precise and controlled way. I mean, an atom or a photon, these are pretty small things. And to control them individually in a very precise way, clearly that's a technologically very challenging thing to do. Much more technologically challenging than building, uh, say, a normal transistor, which contains billions, maybe trillions of atoms. So, Because the scale is so small and the precision we require is so great, uh, it's really a technological issue. And we will get there. We're, We're making very good progress. People are succeeding now in controlling individual atoms. But now we need to scale it up to the point where we've got thousands or millions of these individually controlled atoms all interacting with each other in a very precise way. And so it's just a matter of time. It's not a matter of if it will happen, but rather when. In a few years' time or a few decades' time, mm-hmm. you know, we get up in the morning and we go about our day and what, mm. how are we using quantum technology? Sure. So, so there are two broad streams where we would potentially run, rely on quantum computers on a day-to-day basis. And this is not to say that within your laptop or within your smartphone, you would actually have a quantum processor. Probably it would be happening outside in the cloud somewhere. But within the cloud, what might be happening behind the scenes is the quantum computer is solving complex optimization problems or big data processing problems. And certainly in the world of social media, where you've got billions of users and you're trying to find common data between them and correlations and how to extract meaningful things about this collection of billions of people, uh, there are all sorts of optimization problems and big data crunching problems that that are being used in that. Uh, So it affects things like social media, Uh, things like optimising resource allocation, so even something as simple as how do I get from point A to point B in a map in the most efficient way.
0: All the experts in this story pointed out that quantum computers would probably never fit in your pocket, mainly because they only operate at temperatures close to negative 300 degrees, but some also pointed out that that's the same kind of thing that experts said at the dawn of computers as we know them now. In 1943, for example, the chairman of IBM said, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. But whether they fit into our pocket or not, we'll all be using quantum computers via the internet. And look, if anything we've covered in today's episode went over your head, as much of it did mine, don't worry,
1: we're in good company. Richard Feynman, I believe, said... uh If you think you understand quantum physics, you don't understand quantum physics. (laughs) And keep in mind, this is one of the most influential quantum physicists in history, who was one of the founding members of the Manhattan Project. So obviously I don't. I'm no Richard Feynman. The bottom line is that that our brains have evolved in a certain physical context, and that physical context is the laws of classical or Newtonian physics, whereby this apple is either here or there, and it's either moving this way or that way, and it has this color or that color. Our, Our brains didn't evolve in the quantum world, where atoms can be here and there at the same time, or these two can be entangled over a million light years apart, and so... Because our brains have evolved in a particular physical context, our whole system of intuition is based on that particular context. And so uh, intuition for, for the quantum world is something that just doesn't come naturally to us as humans.
0: been listening to think digital futures where we tell stories from and about the digital age subscribe to our podcast through itunes or any other podcasting app Uh, at this program is a collaboration between uts and 2 ser our theme music is by Nonima, and i'm your host lawrence bull talk to you later
4: radio radio Uh Uh radio Right AR.